my name is Barbara Iverson and I will be your moderator for today's dialogue. I teach interpersonal skills at Code University of Applied Sciences here in Berlin. In addition to the international sign interpretation, as part of our dialogue today, all of us appearing on camera are giving a short description of ourselves for those participating who are visually impaired. I am a white woman with medium length wavy blonde hair wearing a bright orange button down shirt. So the center has partnered with the Civic Tech Innovation Network for its new series of digital dialogues. With this new series, we want to continue challenging the civil society sector with inspiring conversations based on the constant change that digitalization brings to our societies. Each discussion will be a call to action for CSOs to take a more active role in shaping our digital future. So today we are taking a look at the issue of how can international CSOs help or hinder grassroots tech innovation. And I am so pleased now to introduce our three panelists. We have Gabriella Rosano from Open Up, and she's joining us from Pretoria, South Africa. Aaron Leonard from Integrity Action is joining us today from London. And James Rayner from Kumwe Hub is joining us from Nairobi. We're looking forward to what they'll be sharing with us today. And now I'm going to give them, each of them, a few minutes to introduce themselves, talk about what they're doing, and give us a picture of their perspective on our question for today. So, Gabriella. So, hi, everyone. I'm Gabriella. I am, have brown hair. So, I'm the executive director of a civic tech lab based in Cape Town called Open Up. And we've partnered with national government, we've partnered with local communities, we've partnered with local municipalities as well as youth communities to build civic tech, generally low tech civic tech for the benefit of citizens and for the advancement of social change. I wanted to start off the discussion today highlighting three kinds of topics just quickly based on my experiences on working with international CEOs, CSOs, CEOs. I have a quite a few years experience in the development sector in general. So I wanted to talk first to ways in which these relationships have helped, ways in these relationships have hindered, and then to add just a third section looking at little bits of nuance that I think might be interesting for the conversation. To address first, you know, the very direct ways that these kinds of partnerships have helped. I mean, one of the more obvious ones is it is a form of very flexible funding support. It has often been an opportunity to co-fund or be co-funded by, by people with the same kinds of objectives as you, and in a manner that's a lot more flexible than some of the other traditional routes of funding. And I don't think that that should be um, undermined. I think there's also a strong level of political support that we've gotten for different kinds of issues through our international collaborations, which have been very useful in our domestic lobbying sometimes having the support of international CEOs on a lobbying topic as credence to conversations at national level. And, and, and I really think that's an important function. And I think the third is obviously the kind of shared learnings that come through these kinds of participations. So really the key benefits in these kinds of relationships is that aspect of sharing. I do think there are often situations in which I've partnered with international CSOs where there has been a serious imposition of the advocacy priorities of those organizations, not necessarily in a way that's 
context relevant or that speaks to our own advocacy agendas. You know, the imposition of technology solutions that don't necessarily work for our context. So if there's one kind of key phrase to come up as our caution, I think that the key method for, for working on these kinds of hindrances is listening. You know, that this, these are relationships that should be based on sharing and these are relationships that should be based on listening. And just to add some more general points in this area, I think that what is interesting about the innovation environment is sometimes the, cons the language of innovation is used to, to sometimes conceal what can be very unhelpful uh, design practices. So often we use the terminology of scaling as a euphemism for cut and paste, and, and these are not the same things. Thank you so much, Gabriella. We will hope that when she's able to come back on that the connection's a little bit better, but I think we understood the points that she was making. And so that's fantastic. So Erin, I see you there. Fantastic. Would you introduce yourself and take about five minutes to share with us your perspective? So my name is Aaron Leonard. I'm a white male with headphones on and a big beard. So I'm the technology manager here at Integrity Action. And I think in the context of, of this conversation, the, the easiest thing I can do to, to start off with is to explain a bit about us and kind of how we operate as well in this, in this environment. So we always operate as part of a consortium. So we're always in a mix of, of a partnership of, of international funding um, partners and local development organizations that operate at the community level and can really be, be more active and, and engaged in, in that sense. Essentially, as part of this partnership, what we do is we look for instances where development promises have not been delivered or they've been delivered in a way that doesn't conform to what was originally put forward. For instance, if a local politician running for office pledges to build a school in a district and once elected in office does not in fact build that school, we can definitely say, okay, that was a promise. The, the people of the community are owed this, this school, but it hasn't been delivered. Shifting from infrastructure to something like service, if for instance, a local community council promises that they will ensure that teachers within said school will be in an attendance 90% uh, of the time on, on any given month, that is also a pledge that we can take. So these are very quantifiable metrics in terms of, of saying, uh, listen, you are owed something, and this thing is not being provided. So what we do with, with local development organizations is we try and establish a resolution framework. We say, okay, so this is where you are. This is what you're owed. Within what time frame do we think we can turn things around? And within this context, what are some key metrics we want to hit along the way? What this allows us to do is build a monitoring methodology. Now, it's different for every project because none of these are none of these are the same, and it's so it really can't be copy copy paste. But with our partners, we set aside some time to establish basically what we refer to as question sets, but we use our application, which is called DevCheck, and the live data is streams back to our website. And you can see that right now, if you want, you just go to integrityaction.org. On the top right-hand side of that, there's a little banner that says DevCheck, and it's a map page with all that information coming in. So monitors are able with our application to go out into the field and report issues, but also report fixes. They can say, okay, this is a problem. This doesn't conform to what was promised. This does, or this didn't, but now it does. And so we get a whole community of individuals really interacting with that and passing back some, some really, well, 
relatively high quality quantitative information. Now, and I say this as a technology manager myself, tech itself isn't the solution. It's, it's a fantastic amplifier. It's a, it's, a, it's a fantastic way to communicate. But at the end of the day, what we want is to put together what we refer to as, as joint working groups. And that involves obviously members of the community themselves, but also the duty bearers, you know, that local council that, that made that pledge, get them in the room together, along with contractors. If you're building a school, it's, it's helpful to have the people that are building the school there with you. And if possible, some senior members of that community and really use that data that we gathered to have a constructive conversation on where things are at. Adding to that kind of more quantitative info, we've got some qualitative stuff. We allow monitors to upload access to information documents, so receipts, invoices, anything that could kind of constitute proof and allow really kind of a fact-based conversation to take place. And we've got stuff like Ask the Community, which basically is just going out to the community and surveying and seeing what people feel. Do they think, are they, are they aware that they are entitled to this? If they're aware, do they think they even need it? If they don't, we might be monitoring the wrong thing. And are they satisfied with what they're seeing? At the end of the day, it, it's, a, it's a good mixed partnership in, in the remit that when we leave, there's an organization there that has benefited from the experience we've built up on previous project that can add their expertise and will stay there. So it helps with sustainability. And at the end of the day, we're hoping that all of this together means that people will be empowered to ask for integrity from the people that represent them. And I think that's on the button for my five minutes. Uh, thank you, Aaron. Really appreciate that. We're going to go now to James. Can you, there you are with your camera on, you can unmute yourself and take about five minutes to tell us about you and the work that you do with Kumwe and Save the Children. Thanks, Bob. And thanks so much for having me. It's great to be able to speak to you all on this call and, and to have this discussion. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, my name is James Rayner. I'm a white man with bald hair and wearing a blue open collared shirt. I'm phoning today kind of from Save the Children, which is one of the world's biggest international NGOs. We have offices in 121 countries and our focus is helping to ensure that children can survive, thrive and be protected. Within that, though, um, I head up a small kind of spin-off called Kumwe Hub. Kumwe is uh, Kenya Rwanda, Rwandan language uh, for together. And it's essentially a sort of impact and innovation startup within Save the Children. So it's a kind of separate organization owned by and, uh, and run by Save the Children. Our focus is trying to achieve Save the Children's mission, but to do that by supporting local partners and particularly by supporting local businesses who have a positive social impact. So startups, entrepreneurs, small businesses who are doing really positive things for children in Rwanda and across Africa as well. We're currently working in five uh, of those countries. So that's Rwanda, Zambia, Zimbabwe, Tanzania and Uganda, working with businesses to try and help them improve their positive impact for children. We do that in three key ways. We have three pillars. The first is lab, and that's essentially helping businesses to pilot their ideas within Save the Children's programming. So it might be that a business wants to try a new product or try a new uh, program within a refugee camp where Save the Children has a lot of work going on. We help them to do that. So we give them access to our programming and introduce them to community members who might want to use their, their business. 
The second is essentially a consultancy. It's called The Incubator, but it's where we connect these small businesses, one to five people businesses, with much bigger international actors, as well as Save the Children's own staff, to offer technical support and advice. And that could be from anything from how to register their business through to technical advice and how to have the most positive impact. And finally, what is perhaps most exciting is the third pillar, which is fund. And that's where we're offering financial support to these businesses to help them scale and sustain their business. That's in the form of grants, low interest loans, and then also buying or taking equity share in some of these small businesses. So just before I finish, a little bit on our kind of motivation and why we're doing this. Obviously, Save the Children's this big kind of beast. And sometimes that's good, but sometimes it really holds us back. And it can be a little bureaucratic and often kind of very Western led. So by doing this new approach and by kind of trying to cut out the middle actor as much as possible, we're hoping that this could be a new way for us to kind of improve our outputs and improve the impact that we can have for children um, and communities in our work. But um, yeah, looking forward to the conversation. I want to give space now to the three of you for questions that you might have for one another. And Erin, I'm going to go off of something you mentioned before, and that was what Gabby mentioned about scaling as this sort of copy paste. And you you spoke to that a bit, Erin, but Gabby, I wonder if you could elaborate a little bit more on what that means and how you've seen that and what some of the either problems or solutions or just talk a little bit more about that. You know, I think it might link some of the conversation on thinking about scale and not copy paste actually links to sort of, you know, some of the political dynamics about this conversation that I don't think we should shy away from, which is particularly often experienced in the African context, you know, where I think, you know, we shouldn't just be seen as a site in which people can test, you know, products that they've developed and solutions they've developed in other contexts. And often under the auspices of like, well, we're scaling this very effective solution, so we're bringing it to you, is a euphemism for what it is, which is cutting and pasting something to a completely different context without first, you know, engaging in, with those communities, engaging with those politics. Politics is the big problem right for external actors coming in anywhere and I say that as someone who sits on both sides someone who collaborates with international NGOs but also as a professional NGO in South Africa which collaborates with grassroots organizations and has you know also many of the same political dynamics you know uncomfortable dynamics sometimes particularly being an implementer of technology so yeah I think that's kind of what I was touching on a bit there I hope that's useful yeah, definitely. James or Aaron, is there something that you like, does that raise something for either of you that you want to address or or follow up with with Gabby? Yeah, I think it's it's completely fair that that when you when you apply one methodology to another uh, another sector, there's a myriad of things that you could potentially miss. I think probably in in Gabriella's case, it's it's more so because there are political elements and and there are there are questions that I have for her regarding that afterwards. But when we talk of scale, we talk about taking a single instance of something and adding users. 
Sometimes there's, there's a conflagration between sustainability and scale as well, where you can, you know, do things, you, you can bring a framework sideways, but it can't take on more users. You can see that really clearly when it comes to technology. What is the, what is the, the ceiling for the number of users that your current process can house? Or can you literally just fork your code and give it to somebody else and let them do something with it? So there's a certain tangibility that's very interesting there. Yeah, I think from my side, I, I completely agree. And I think this idea of piloting things in Africa because it's, you know, either either a kind of less bureaucratic place or there's different kinds of risks is, is definitely a challenge. And I can think of a few examples. I won't name them but, uh, within Rwanda. I won't name the business, but they wanted to work in New York. New York City said no. And so they piloted this approach in Kigali because the, um, the government there were more kind of... Um, happy with the approach and, and whatever else so i think i definitely agree that that's an issue for me at least in my role i'm thinking about scale less in terms of a kind of programmatic thing or or, or code or, or whatever else are and are in different slightly different areas on that but for me it's about trying to scale an approach or even a way of thinking about the way that we deliver our impact and thinking less about, you know, big Western-centered NGOs and thinking more about, okay, local people understand this better than we do. Let's support them as much as we can and, and listen to what they need uh, rather than being so kind of Western-led and, and kind of Western-dominated. I think that's a problem probably quite unique for big NGOs like Save the Children, or at least more um, acutely felt there, at least. Just to, to follow up on, on that question with you, James, what would you say, how do you recognize a business with kind of change-making potential and that could take it to that, that next step? Great question. Really great question. It depends on the scale of the business, to be honest. I mean, some of the grants we've given out are $500, so pretty small. And there, the kind of impact assessment we do is, is fairly light touch. We'll go on what their plans are uh, and whatever else. When we start looking at bigger businesses, then it becomes a lot more kind of rigorous. We have third party monitoring and evaluation, and they do assessments for us to kind of think about two things really one is the kind of output level so is this business sustainable so they'll look at their finances and governance structure whatever else but then they do go a, a level further to do things like telephone interviews with their kind of their target buyers target community to see okay is this having a positive impact in your life and what does that look like so yeah we're not perfect at it definitely but um, we're trying to do the sort of no, it sounds like an interesting mix. It's almost checking if there's business viability and, and if the kind of the bones of the business, I guess you could say, are, are in a good state. No, that's, that's, um, that's really interesting. Uh, do, you, do you see like a particular, so I'm very interested in this kind of dynamic between kind of nonprofit and private and, and, and stuff like that. It, it must be uh, delicate to navigate, but is there any kind of ecosystem that you see having a lot of promise, maybe in, in Rwanda specifically or? Yeah, great question. At the moment, one of them that's been really interesting is the publishing industry. There's very few Kenya Rwanda early learning books. So sort of three to six up to sort of, you know, through primary school, there's basically no local language books for children in schools. And so we did a big publishing event and we actually had an MP coming up to us and saying oh can I buy some of these books because I can't find them I don't know where you can get them in, in Rwanda so I mean that's one area one example of where we think there's a kind of a gap in the market which has an obvious positive social impact for for Rwandan children yeah and that talks to knowledge production local knowledge production really nicely which is you know a big issue across the continent it's not just an education issue it's it's a question of you know being getting a regional foot in a conversation. It's such an important impact, I think.
Yeah, impact is, is always kind of a, it, it's ultimately what all of us want. Gabriella, a question I had for you, because, and once again, you have that kind of interesting experience of, of nonprofit, but but also in that political kind of space. How, how do you navigate the, the kind of the balance between being antagonistic and seeking a collaborative approach to policy change? In, in the nonprofit space, there's kind of this disparity between, we have a reasonably good carrot, but a tiny stick. So we can't really motivate antagonistically a lot of the time, unless it's really well performed. Do you, does your organization seek one way above the other? And what kind of challenges have you found, found in that space? I mean, that's very interesting. Uh, you know, I, I actually come from a legal background originally, sort of like legal activism and transparency. And part of the reason I started moving into the open data and technology space was because actually, while it is fundamentally a political issue, there was some government was so much more accommodating to a question they thought was a technical question, so much more engaging and so much more promising. And we built trust with our government partners. We don't engage really in policy advocacy per se, but we're, we're a social change organization, you know, at, at, at our heart. And we navigate it by building trust and building relationships and, and very much uh, providing utility for government. We very much see government as our partners. Just following up on, on something that Gabriella said there about there being more interest in technology, I think this is probably something that all nonprofits have, have seen to a certain extent because technology is seen as something that's relatively novel. It can draw a lot of attention to it. It's a bit of a double-edged sword because there can be a, a perception that technology itself will resolve the issue instead of just being a factor to resolve that issue. And I, I wonder, because both of you are still in, in the tech space, very much so, do you ever encounter that issue where there is this perception that tech alone will solve it? And how do you, do you have kind of a, of a way to, 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 a way to restore the, the understanding that they, well, this will still take people in collaboration and effort without diminishing the, the, the real potential that this has to leverage interest? Because that's something we want to keep as well. Yeah, it's a great question. And I feel like, you know, I'm, I've actually been looking at some of the comments in the chat. I know we're going to come to that soon. But yeah, there is this kind of confusion, I suppose, between saying, oh, this is innovative. Oh, where's the tech? You know, it's got to be tech led if it's going to be innovative. And and again, it, it does make me think about what we're trying to do at Kumwe Hub. It's, it's, it's actually not about the tech for us. It's about trying to convince this big organization or even the sector as a whole to say, let go of some of this power that you have and let people who know what they're talking about do it. And that for them is an innovative approach, I suppose. And there's a lot of talk about that and not a lot of action, I think. And that's, I think, I mean, I'll probably get told off for saying this, but that's true at Save the Children as, as much as other organisations. So, yeah, I mean, I, I do find a lot of the programmes that we're working with are kind of tech related, but we do consciously try and talk to our staff within Kumwe about, you know, try and have this open mind, think about innovation just as trying something new or doing something differently rather than just thinking about it from a tech lens. Yeah, I can I can totally understand that. There is a perception that because you know uh, offline technologies existed before, if it could have been solved through that medium, it would have been, which is is definitely not the case. And technology can can serve as a, as a facilitator for offline processes. A lot of the monitoring we do is is in regions where yes, we definitely use our application, but it's an offline application, so you need to run around and and reconnect at some point in the future. But we're always interested in in entirely the offline solutions just because it it uh, until the the world is completely connected 
there are times where we're offline solutions are going to serve you serve you better. And that's sometimes some of the more interesting instances, because you really have to get quite creative. Ultimately, you want to digitize a lot of the time that information to, to analyze it in a way, uh, you know, at scale, as it were. But it, it does provide the opportunity for some some really unique ideas to, to kind of emerge. I just have one follow-up, if that's okay, for, for Gabriella. I was just, I was really interested. It sounds like you have a great relationship with the government where you're working in, in South Africa. And I totally agree that actually often the way to have the most impact and the most scale is by working through the government because they have so much power, so much funding, whatever else. I mean, maybe you guys aren't doing this yet, but like, how, how do you work in governments or contexts where the government is maybe less friendly to that, but where there's also a real need for your work? I mean, you have to take a systems approach to things, you know, and experiment here and lever it here and find something that works. And, you know, kind of linked to the conversation that we were just having before, it's important to understand that everybody internally understands what impact is and that we internally understand that impact is about social change and is about far more than technology. We're also starting to use that language within our relationships with government. So to encourage not just the development of tech, but you know, the incorporation of agile methodologies and, and you know, agile training and, and just rethinking internal systems and approaches to systems and just nudging. But it's politics is hard. <laughs> and you're not always going, not everybody's going to believe in what you do all the time. We found actually significant traction at focusing on local government, interestingly enough which a lot of people believe to be, you know, national government's ugly cousin. Yeah, so we found some traction in working with local government in particular. I think which sometimes surprises people, but I think as the people who are on the coalface of service delivery, they're often far more incentivized to collaborate with their communities than national government. And particularly because a lot of our work is on civic participation, we found that successful. Yeah, I'd just like to say that that's very much what, what we've found in some instances as well. Local government seems to be almost a, a sweet spot for some organizations. We tend to try and, and, and operate at three levels. One's just the individual, and that's really done through grassroots organizations and, and, and community building institutions. Um, that can be the schools themselves, hospitals, what have you. And then kind of more the, the systems level where we can look at what mechanisms are fundamentally in place. But the latter two of those institutions and system shifts, we found to be very, very effective at that kind of local government level, because once again, as you say, there is that interaction with people and people by nature, if you can get them in a room together, they're so much more um, ready to interact and converse and compromise and realize that this is maybe a systems issue, not a people issue. And if you can if you can shift that focus from it being someone's fault to something's fault, I think it takes a lot of the stress away from that. And it introduces a very kind of human component. Of course, that's subjective and it depends on every project. And, and sometimes it does not happen like that. But that's something I can definitely resonate with. Thanks to all three of you. This has really been lively and fun, but I do want to make sure that we shift slightly over towards some of the questions that we've received during and also before the dialogue started. So the first one is, why are donors reluctant to grant funds for social digital projects in Africa? And perhaps linked to that, what plans are there to develop skills for acceleration of digital-based development programming? Does one of the three of you want to try to tackle that question? 
Yeah, I'll give it. I'll give it a. I'll give it Great, a shot. Great, James, go uh, for it. I, I think this is about appetite for risk, and I think a lot of these big donors get kind of comfortable with their known partners who they can trust and whatever else, and and that they have a track record with. And and often, sadly, that does mean either big businesses, you know, KPMG, the big four kind of whatever consultancies, or big NGOs where they have this kind of track record. And that's not always the best solution, but it's often the safest for them, or at least perceived to be the safest for them, and also easier for them to manage, right? So they give big chunks chunks of funding as opposed to small lots of smaller grants to smaller CSOs. The one way that I think, you know, trying to think of a positive solution to this, one way that you can get around this is, is through consortiums, I think. And also, I do think these big donors are getting there. We're thinking more about locally led solutions to this. I'm thinking about USAID. They, they're big kind of, they've branded it their journey to self-reliance. But really, they're kind of beginning to exclude big NGOs now from their funding, which is which is actually really good to see, being a bit more kind of open to, to local partnership. Yeah, I think James was absolutely on the money there. That that's pretty much pretty much it. The only thing that, that I would add from a technical perspective, maybe, is that I think there is increasing amount of technical fatigue. So there's there's a few projects that have that have implemented you know technical solutions and stuff that haven't quite yielded the the results that that were expected. And so I think donors are more cagey about it. There is you know despite that 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 shiny element of of technology, technology isn't as new as as a lot of us tend to to, to, to think just off the top of our head. You know, offline monitoring applications are, are a decade or plus old. So there's there's kind of a an increased wariness that comes back to the appetite for risk that, that James was talking about. Gabby, is there anything that you want to add into that? Yeah, I mean, I do think it, there's also, it becomes a question, A, of the responsibilities of organizations that do receive funds to think about their partners, but also it is about, you know, there might be a civic tech solution in it. There, there are, a lot of it has to do with financial reporting and administrative reporting. And so how do you capacitate grassroots organizations to be able to do those functions so that they can access those kinds of funds as well? You know, so I think that is part of the solution. Yeah, thank you. I'm going to go into the chat here. And I think Dennis was essentially touching on some of this in his question earlier. Why do donors decide on tech solutions to be used before asking local CSOs to apply for grants, most time those tech solutions don't just, or just don't fit in. Is there anything that you'd like to add into that or address specifically to that question? Is it specifically in that chronology? Because sometimes the the idea of, of developing a tech solution is really what instigates the process of the grant. If, if you go to, to, to said funder and you say, listen, I'm going to develop this marvelous application, it's going to gather all the data and it's, everything's going to be available. That's a really strong ask. That's, you know, that, that has some traction to it. So I think that's why there's, there's a multiplicity of, of applications that are developed without a sustainable plan or a, a, a kind of a roadmap to handoff or, or something like that. That is answering the question backwards, though. So I'm aware of that. No, sorry. <laughs> I'm okay with that. James or Gabby, is there anything that you might want to add to that? Great. Then we have one from Nazi. The challenge we face is once we build and donate free of charge, the demand-driven tailored technology solution to the local NGOs to advance their work. 
how can the local NGO sustain ongoing tech maintenance, the technology after the life of the project? So Aaron, I see you nodding. You've got thoughts on this. I saw James on mute though. Would you like to, to start on that? Oh. Yeah, no, absolutely. So there's there's large conversations happening in the space, and it's it's really vital that it does happen pertaining to the sustainability of technology, and and because there's real there's cost to learning a technology, especially in Western nations, we we take technological literacy for granted, using an application, learning it, but it's it's often not the case with some of the communities we work with. They don't have exposure to to smartphones, and if you learn to use an application, you want it to be there the long term. So there's often a thought that you can just kind of hand off that application, but that doesn't take into account that that software is, is never done. It's always in progress. It always needs to be patched, maintained. There's server costs. You need to, to pay for storage. And if you're the one managing that software, you really need to take into account the fact that you're going to need someone with high skill and that needs to be paid a lot to make any changes to it. I would say that if there isn't a long-term plan for a specific kind of software that you're implementing, instead look at open source software that is hosted. I mean, for instance, in the development space, ODK and Kobo Toolbox. Kobo Toolbox in, in particular is hosted by the UN, so there isn't any hosting costs. What we're really seeing is that there are more and more available technologies that you can kind of patchwork together into something really impressive and still offset your maintenance costs to somebody else. And it just makes sense to pool that, pool that resources together. So, you know, you're monitoring on the ground, do that with, with you know, the ODK application. You can hook that up to, to you know, Kobo Toolbox as, as a server, and you can pull your data out if you are a qualified nonprofit into something like Power BI through the REST API and get some really interesting visuals at a fraction of a cost of what it would take to build it yourself. There's some great documents out there called Don't Build It within the, the nonprofit space about the danger of, of building your own applications. I think a, 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 a big thing is reach out to someone that has built it and they'll tell you all the reasons not to do it and, and maybe some alternatives. So really it's it's about us talking to each other in this space and learning from from you know some of the mistakes, which we can be, you know, trepidant to share, but it's 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 for the good that we do. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great answer. Thanks, Aaron. I, I, I guess my focus here would be about your funding, right? As Aaron mentioned, it's it's really expensive to maintain these programs often, and particularly programmers seem to be very expensive staff members to bring on or maintain. So just having a very clear plan about how you're going to fund your technology going forward. You know, once you get the 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 seed capital or whatever to get this going, that's not the end you know it, that's going to last you for a fixed period of time and you have to have a runway for how you're going to keep this going so you know and that differs from business to business from from charity to charity whatever else having a really clear plan about how you're going to do that and actually Aaron's suggestions are really nice one you know can you loan your technology out to someone else can you find a partner who's willing to pay you to to access the tech technology on a sort of yearly subscription anything like that that can allow you the funding stream to maintain and, and hopefully grow that that solution as well I think you know open source has to be part of your sustainability conversation you know, and I also think that once something's shown utility, you know, once you know it has value, part of your planning has to be the maintenance of that. That has to be, we now have in our core project funding line items for maintenance. That's maintenance often of software that we provide to other CDOs 
because we just see utility in it. You know what I mean? And that's a cost we're willing to carry. But what's interesting about that then, you know, it sounds like a technical question, but it isn't really. And it goes back to those conversations about how organizations are funded. Do you know what I mean? We have the we have core funding, which allows us a lot of flexibility, but like you guys are pointing out, there are often not those opportunities to leverage those kinds of funds for that purpose, in spite of it being such a fundamental question. Yeah, just to, to follow up on, on two of those points um, from, from each of the other participants there. I think that open source can be part of the solution, but often it's misunderstood in some contexts. And it, it's almost thought that, that if you make something open source, the hosting will be free and someone else will build your software for you. And some organizations go into this thinking that they'll just be able to build software hand it off to a community of, of engineers out there, you know, some of the, the highest paid people in the world that will suddenly do it for free and that, that that will be fine. And with that false presumption, they think that the initial cost, you know, is the cost of the software. And as James pointed out, that's that's absolutely not the case. The initial cost of the software is, is nowhere near its full lifetime. And not only that, the more you penny pinch on the initial launch, the, the, the bigger your legacy and, and technical debt will be. And so there'll be some, some real gremlins waiting in the code for you. So it's uh, a part of it, yes, done well, yes. But organizations should, should still look around the place for, for long-term solution. I just want to flag, there's a great question in the chat from Melissa, which is a follow-up to this, which is talking about the danger to using third-party platforms. So what happens when they change their rules or you end up losing access, which I think is a really, maybe Aaron, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and thanks for flagging. Yeah, there's, there's a bunch of things you can do. I would firstly always ensure that your data is housed in a, in a country in which you have high level of, of ownership of it and that you can pull it out if you need. A lot of the solutions that are out there should allow you to pull your data out of it. Um, so you always want to make sure that you can get it out of there and even to re-upload it to something else. And so that mitigates it a little bit. Changing terms of condition are, are always a concern. But if you don't build your, your own application, you still haven't spent that money anyway. So you're probably just using a third party until you produce something for yourself. So it's not like you've lost those funds. You can still build something for yourself afterwards or get together with, with a few organizations and, and, and collectively build something which, which might be interesting. I think some of the concerns could also be alleviated by looking into the, obviously the, the terms and conditions, no one wants to do it, but it is very important. And maybe selecting a partner that doesn't allow, you know, the organization itself to access your data, make sure it's encrypted at rest, depending on the sensitivity of the data. So really it's just looking into the, the actual governance around the stewardship of data, because it's more about data than it is about the system. The system is just the piping that, that gets you the stuff you want. And normally it's output in a format that's universal enough to, to be housed by somebody else if need be. Our time is slowly coming to an end. And I think we've pretty much hit the questions that were in the chat, perhaps not directly, but as you've been chatting particularly about these tools and third party and, and prioritizing and funding and things that you've hit most of them. But I want to give space for each of you. Oh, we've lost Gabby. Hope she's able to come back. But Aaron, for you and James, just to take a moment to consider sort of final thoughts or maybe aha moments that you've had throughout this process, things that during the course of the last hour 
you've just hit on something that you want to reiterate or share with those listening. Erin, you can go ahead and jump in if you've got something. Yeah, maybe just to, to diverge from, from some of the more technical aspects that I've, I've been talking about there and to come back to, to kind of the idea of, of do those kind of partnerships sometimes stifle one of the partners? I would say that it really is all in, in the setup and maybe not as interestingly, but it's the policies you put in place. Because if you're if any two partners of any given size have a disparity, the natural kind of entropy of, of the universe leads towards one being stifled by the other. And I think the key is acknowledging that as soon as possible and setting up safeguards for that smaller partner to be as protected as possible, because it, it might not be intentional, but if there is a disparity, ultimately it will manifest in, in one way, shape or, or another. Great. Thank you. Gabby, um, sort of final thoughts or words from you as well, things that you're taking away perhaps from this conversation? Just to note, you know, often those successful collaborations about two you know, the two things you say all the time, and, and one is incredible honesty, and the other is a shared vision. And that shared vision always helps you go back. Developing that shared vision is often a painful process, but it needs, again, to be an honest one. Uh, but, you know, these are all experiments. Relationships are experiments just as much as our technical production is. And as long as you're open to learning, I think it's still good. <laughs> Great. Thank you so much. James, what about you? Final thoughts from you? Yeah, it's been a great conversation. I um, I think for me, it's this idea of the importance of, of partnership. And actually, I think Aaron, I'd love to, if you could send through, I don't know if you can send through to the whole group, but this uh, don't build it document is just so interesting because I think often in innovation, you do sort of, you're constantly reinventing the wheel often and you don't need to do that actually there's some really great resources out there already you know that, that exist and, and working with partners that you can use their solutions as well so I think I think that's just kind of it's been really good to have this conversation and remind myself of that and and maybe something that we need to suggest with the businesses we're working with in, in Rwanda and elsewhere to say okay hang on a second have you spent a day or two looking what's out there first and, and just to flag, I think my colleague Isabel actually just shared that link there. So she must have had her eye on it as, as, as well. But awesome. yeah, entirely, you know, as you say, don't don't build the wheel again. There's a bicycle shop right there. Go go talk to people that are building wheels and, and we can have that dialogue and, and really, you know, hopefully, you know, build something else. Well, on that note, we're going to wrap it up. The hour always goes by far too fast and we really hit a stride and that's when it's time to wrap it up. But um, thank you to both Isabella and Melissa for posting the links to the Don't Build It document. Been illuminating, inspiring, and so informative. So thank you to the three of you, Gabby, Erin, and James. Thanks to all of you who've joined us from around the world. This happens, this dialogue happens every first Thursday of the month and you can find more information on the website. The next one is scheduled for Thursday, the 5th of May. And the topic will be making data accessible, the role of government and civil society partnerships in building open and comprehensive data sources. For all of us on behalf of the International Civil Society Center, again, I'm Barb Iverson. Thank you so much for joining us and we will see you next time. Thank you.